0: I do want to make one more comment uh, in regards to my installation and want to say again how wonderful uh, Joyce's sermon was on Sunday. And if you have not had a chance to listen to it, you can get it on our live stream, the video, but also you can... We have a podcast that releases every sermon that's preached here, uh, usually Sunday afternoon. So I invite you to take a listen. and. well, I hope it's certainly a balm for each of you as members of the church, it certainly was, I think, a balm to many of the clergy that were here as well. So, Joyce, thank you. And, of course, it's hard to follow up. When you hear such a great sermon, now I've got to go and I've got to preach again from the same text. Y'all should really know Luke 4 by the time today is done. You know, it's funny, though. I started wondering out loud this week after hearing, you know, after preaching uh, in the morning and then listening to Joyce's sermon, and how she astutely noted that there are so many pastors who, um, over the last couple years, have found their way out of pulpits for lots of different reasons, oftentimes because of the struggle of circumstances. And I started wondering this week, what would be the thing that would make this church so angry that it'd want to launch me off of a cliff? Now, this isn't just me feeling myself now that I'm installed, like, good luck now. <laughs> Nor is this, honestly, some sort of personal challenge that, that, that you or I should undertake. Like, let's not try. There aren't a whole lot of cliffs in Jacksonville anyway, so we'd have to work really hard to find one in the first place. Let's just call this a thought exercise together, okay? Okay. And in the last 15 months, it's not like we've shied away from really big and really important and really difficult topics. Even before I was installed, we've tackled these together. We've talked about political issues together. If you remember when we did the Sermon Madness this year, you asked me to preach a sermon on Christians in government. You asked for it. We've had sermons preached about race. I've talked about GLBTQ issues. I've talked about COVID issues, and we've talked about the building. We have done almost a generation's worth of work together in 15 months. I mean, it really is. When you take a step back and you think of all the stuff we've done, it's a lot. It's interesting, though, to see what happens in this text when Jesus hits on an interesting topic. And there's a transition here between these two parts of Luke, isn't there? You know, we talked last week, everything seems really happy. Everything seems really good. I said listening to the text, like Jesus was preaching it, almost have been like you know, Tasha did a wonderful job or David did a wonderful job. We listen and we say, ah, isn't that lovely? We're set within the synagogue in the first half of the text, and we're also on the home turf of everybody, Jesus and the people. This is home. And for a long time this week, I wanted to ask the question, how can we live a mission so scandalous that it is enraging? But the truth is, this text that Jesus preaches that turns the people to rage is not really all that scandalous. Just asking to do things that have been in the text. And there are plenty of times in Hebrew texts that would have been heard over and over again that are replete with caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the stranger and foreigner in the midst of them. There were cities of refuge in the Hebrew area, in Israel and Judah, that meant to be places that if somebody was inappropriately charged for a crime, they could flee to a city of refuge and be safe setting the prisoner free. There were Sabbath years, and history tells us that we're not sure if there was ever a year of Jubilee, but certainly there were times when the land rested. These were all parts of the story of the people in the church with Jesus that day. And the other thing is, there's no indication, according to Luke or any of the other gospel writers that tell this story, that this is a bad group of people. This is not a bad church. I'm sure they're the folks that watched Jesus grow up and saw him as a carpenter's assistant and hung out with the family. These are your buddies. These are the folks you go down to the square with to have a glass of wine and you talk and you notice that person you haven't seen for a couple weeks but you're glad you saw him. Oh, hey. Hey. Just a normal, regular crowd. But then everything seems to change when somebody says, is not this Joseph's son? And I wonder if this could be heard as the ancient equivalent of, well, bless his heart. (laughs) Saw... A phrase today that bless his heart is just like chicken and waffles. It can be sweet, it can be spicy, and it is perfect for any situation. You know, Southern Living actually has an article about what to do if somebody says bless their heart. This is good for Yankees like me who are still enculturating a little bit. They actually go through four variations of the phrase and how to respond depending on what happens, and certainly it helps us poor northerners suss out what we're hearing and an appropriate response. The Southern Living article says this about when somebody says bless his or bless her heart. It's often spoken in a whisper, it's not spoken to the proverbial blessed heart. It's spoken to a friend or neighbor about the blessed heart. Usually, if the phrase is uttered to you in conversation about someone not present or present but, not, uh, but out of earshot, the appropriate response is a smile and perhaps a chuckle if you agree. I appreciated this data here to tell us exactly what the usage means. This must be right. But I believe, though, that the one thing unmentioned in the Southern Living article and not mentioned up here is that bless X's heart, bless your heart, bless his heart, bless her heart, is meant to be a conclusion to the topic and to the thought, right? Once you finally say, bless his heart. You're on to the next topic. You don't want to have to be involved with the person anymore. In fact, it's better that you stop at that point. A good, well, bless his heart keeps the perceived foolishness at arm's length, and you could say, let's get on to more interesting topics. Here's the thing Jesus hears, well, bless his heart. Isn't that there? Joseph's boy reading them scriptures, bless his heart. Jesus keeps going. Jesus doesn't stop. He pushes on their sense of comfort, that the words heard from the pews aren't just a pleasantry for their benefit, but has a far more expansive reach, in fact, right out into the entire world and again, I've been down here long enough now to know if you don't press past bless his heart, you just don't do it, or someone's bound to stop being so sweet, and it's going to start being a little bit more spicy with them chicken and waffles. And you know the, that's exactly what happens in this text, right? Boy, I said, bless your heart. Jesus keeps going and everybody is filled with rage. And notice, too, that these are still words from the text, this is still interpretation, but now it just isn't pleasantry from a low-risk, low-impact neighbor boy who speaks well on Saturdays. Now we're talking about some sort of substance from Jesus. So let's take a moment to go back to our initial thought exercise. Let's say, for the sake of argument, I said the following from the pulpit. Now, I'm not going to say it, but let's say I said it. That the idea of a bill that forbids history being taught on account of someone's feelings, as is proposed by the Florida legislature, is antithetical to the gospel, literally the text this week, and should be resisted by any church who is reading the text today honestly. What if I said something like that southern mainline churches who have a long history of active racism and passive inattention to the needs of non-white people should be taking the lead now to engage in the difficult work of continued healing What if I said, now I'm not saying I will say this, but what if I said that churches who speak boldly about loving everyone but limit their inclusion in the full rights and benefits of membership in the church are hypocritically obfuscating the gospel through claims of purity of orthodoxy and should be challenged and that we will not and cannot do the same simply to satisfy those who might show up on a pew on a Sunday morning." Now, I'm not saying I'm going to say this, but how sad is it that somehow, not even three years into a -a once-in-a-lifetime epidemic, we've all somehow lost our sense of loving thy neighbor in order to preserve self-centered freedoms, and that while it's understandable that difficult things have happened at South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, to continue to be angry about issues that have passed years ago is honestly going to hurt both the person and the church that it may be time to grieve and to move on. Now, hypothetically, if I were to ever say any of those things in a pulpit, ever, I imagine that some of those might finally raise your ire. Those might be the things that make you a little mad. And honestly, the truth is, is what I just said, hypothetically, of course, is not much different than what I've said over the last 15 months up to this point. The only difference is just adding some direct shape and pointing it directly from beyond the walls today to outside this moment. That there's not really a way to say in all these hypothetical statements, well, bless his heart, because now it's transgressed the boundaries of the relationship. In other words, it's no longer just that nice Yankee pastor who speaks too much and too fast sometimes. But instead, it's somebody with something to say about the text. Now, at this point, we ought to stop and consider the texts around today's gospel, which all center around love, Jeremiah being known and called into his work. And then you see, we had 1 Corinthians 13, such a well-known passage we hear all the time that we didn't say it here, but, you know, we talk about love, that love's enduring. And, you know, it says love is kind here, but the Greek is better to say love is humane. Love is sympathetic. Love isn't arrogant, it's not provoked, it doesn't keep score, it celebrates the right and the true. Taken into conversation with our Luke passage today. These passages should be cautionary for both those in the pews and the one who stands in the pulpit. The truth should not be unnecessarily provocative, nor should it be received angrily. It is real love, an arresting kind of love, that binds us to each other. Because here's the thing. I have no doubt that Jesus loved those that were in the synagogue that day. But Jesus also loved everybody who was outside of that synagogue, too. And based on his ministry, it is those on the outside who needed his love, just as the prodigal son is celebrated because of his return yet not at the expense of the one who stayed. It's not that the one who stayed was somehow less than the prodigal son. We too must seek those that are on the margins and arrest our own sense of indignation, lest we throw Jesus ourselves off of a cliff or worse, not do it, and allow Jesus to wander away from our midst. What should we do then? Well, first off, don't get too mad at me. But friends, if there is any place in all of the world that should be able to wrestle with difficult things In unvarnished love, it should be the church of Jesus Christ, full stop. It should be the place that we come from different perspectives and we find a way to struggle and wrestle together. And when we do wrestle with things that should enrage us, we are arrested by love that is patient, kind, sympathetic, hopeful. And recognizes that there is something better than the thing that we feel like we deserve when we are here on Sunday morning. Like Jeremiah, we recognize that there are prophets who have been called from the beginning. And they are tasked with turning the world upside down. And should we fail... To avoid our deeper rage, let us pray both that the cliff is small and that there is a means of egress to slip out unharmed to continue the ministry. I was really struck by at the end of the sermon on Sunday at my installation, Joyce had encouraged we're able to do good Bible work, She said, I want, as as somebody who attends this church, I want Adam to be able to do his job well. In my sort of misty-eyed moment over there, because I was really feeling all of the beauty of the moment, I took that to heart. And sometimes it means saying something that may very well enrage the people who i love dearly it may mean having to walk with you as you are convinced you are going to throw me off a cliff and then somehow sneak away but i promise you dear friends that if at the very least We can shroud ourselves in each of the conversations with the trust that real true god-honoring love provides we may perhaps be able to do what these people in jesus's hometown could not and that is listen to hard things and not throw one another off the cliff if we do that we are providing something that the world needs now more than ever Are we ready to do that? Thanks be to God.